Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be covering verses 20 through 27, uh, the remainder of chapter 9 in today's sermon. You may recall from our last sermon out of Daniel that the completion of the 70 years of exile was nearing an end. That was um, Daniel 9, 9, uh, 1 through 19 we covered. The completion of the 70 years of exile was nearing an end, and Daniel, as one of the exiles, was earnest about this, especially with the changing of regimes. You may recall the Medes had conquered the Babylonians. Daniel knew the 70 years of exile was near completion, as was prophesied by Jeremiah. And so he set aside time to seek the Lord to ascertain what the future held for his people, Israel, and particularly to beseech the Lord on the nation's behalf since uh, the time of the exile was nearing its end. That was a great prayer, amen? And I encourage you to get the sermon if you weren't here. It is the impetus behind our gathering for prayer in regards to our nation coming up here. Now, I've been constructing my eschatology right here before the congregation. We have covered Mark, chapters 12 through 14, dealing with eschatological matters. We're now here in the book of Daniel. And we are going from here back to the New Testament in the book of Revelations. We're now in chapter 9 of Daniel, and I'm constructing an exegetical eschatology, going through the passages and seeing what they say rather than adopting some eschatological scheme and then trying to force the passages into conformance with that eschatological scheme. Just do your exegetical work. Then I take the writings of a premillennialist, a preterist, partial preterist, post-millennialist, and at times an amillennialist, and sometimes multiple scholars, all respected men in their various eschatological camps, read what they have to say, and then I go back and um, do my exegetical work again in light of what I have heard men of God write and draw my conclusions properly. I know it's difficult to jump into the middle of a conversation on eschatology. So I feel sorry for those of you who haven't heard all of the sermons or or who haven't heard any of the sermons. And um, what can I say? Hopefully you'll get something out of this, and uh, hopefully this sermon will be a blessing to you, give you something to consider other than what's probably been force-fed upon you by modern-day evangelical Christianity for all the years of your Christianity. Title of my sermon is simply Daniel 9, 20 through 27. Why don't we read those verses? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Remember, Daniel was praying, and all of a sudden, verse 20, it says, Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And here's the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from going 
the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have in your word. We ask and pray that you uh, help me to preach what you've given me to declare today. And I ask and pray, O Lord, that you give each of the hearers ears to hear so that they might understand your ways and thoughts better, even in regards to end time matters. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. How many of you actually um, like eschatology and um, study it? Raise your hand. Okay, about, a, about 40% of the congregation. How many of you could care less about it? Seriously. Okay. A handful, and the rest of you just don't care whether you're here or not or what. <laughs> so, just going through it. Um, so anyways, um, well, maybe for those of you who didn't raise your hand either way, I can encourage you to have some interest in eschatology. Um, this is going to be a long sermon, so if you don't have an interest, you are going to really hate today. <laughs> You're going to really hate it. And uh, what I'm proffering here today is not common to the ear. Um, we've been taught a line of eschatology in American Christianity that has become familiar to the ears, and we take what's familiar to us and often impose it on the text. Rather than allowing the text speak to us or try to exegete the text, we try to impose what we've already been told upon it. And so what I have here to say here today might seem bizarre to you, might be, seem convoluted, might seem hard for you to even understand. And that's fine, because you need to chew on things, regurgitate them, deal with them in your mind in order to come to some conclusions. So I'm going to simply set forth what God has given me in regards to this passage and uh, what I come away with it um, from my study. I've done tremendous study on this matter, um, more so on this passage than any other that I've covered so far and simply because so much has been written about this and so many different views are available. So hopefully this will be good for you. But let's start off where we're at in verse 20, verses 20 through 23. Uh, talk about the fact, as we saw here, that Gabriel shows up on the scene and lets Daniel know um, that he's going to give him uh, a vision. A vision. And Daniel had been confessing his sin and the sin of his people and making supplication before the Lord, beseeching the Lord for his people, Israel. And answer to his prayer has come. Gabriel has arrived. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, referred here as a man. But he did fly. Notice it says that in the passage. He did fly swiftly to reach Daniel. And we do know from the New Testament that he is an angel. But angels must somehow have the looks of a man because Daniel refers to him as a man. And you may recall the book of Hebrews says that some have entertained angels unawares. They must somehow look like men or are able to look like men um, so that 
we don't know that they're even angels when they're amongst us. Anyways, he informs Daniel in verse 22 that his prayer has been answered. He would receive word regarding his people Israel. Gabriel then shares with Daniel a vision, a vision regarding the future of natural Israel. In verses 24 through 27, which we've already read, the vision is declared. Let me read it again so it's in your mind. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Hallelujah. Now, there's various views held regarding this passage of Scripture. First, everyone, regardless of their eschatological persuasion, are agreed that the weeks are representative of years. These 70 weeks talked about here in verse 24 are actually years. Everyone's agreed on that, regardless of their eschatological persuasion, and this is common for Scripture to be interpreted this way. The Jews had a seven of days, and they also had a seven of years. This is found in the Sabbath rest of the land, the seven of years. The seven of days, of course, was the Sabbath taking place each week. The Sabbath rest of the land, every seven years, the land had uh, was not to be tilled, you may recall. The land and the people rested. And every seven of seven years, or 49 years, there was the year of Jubilee, you may recall, where all rested. The Hebrew used by Daniel in verse 24 is simply 77s, 77s, and all are agreed it is referring to years, not to weeks, regardless of their eschatological persuasion. In other words, there would be a 490-year period of time for this vision. All agree on this. All agree. 490-year period of time. 70 times 7 equals 490. But as regards the particulars of the vision, some, A, believe that the 69 weeks were complete at the commencement of Jesus' public ministry and that the 70th week began then. The sacrifices were brought to an end after three and a half years, which was how long Jesus' ministry on earth was, when Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God. And the 70th week was complete when the gospel moved from being proclaimed to the Jews and shifted more to being proclaimed to the Gentiles. That's what some believe. B, others believe that the 490 years, all 70 weeks, ended with the death of Christ at Calvary. C, others believe the 490 years, all 70 weeks, ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And D, Others believe that there is a huge gap between the 69th and 70th weeks called the church age. Whereas all the others view the vision of Daniel as being fulfilled, they see it as still future. 
This idea was unheard of in Christianity until about 150 years ago. There are also a host of other variations of these ones I mentioned. And when I say a host, I mean a host of variations. You could spend months reading. And I spent two months reading myself. So what are we to believe? Well, I believe we should believe A. We should believe that the 69 weeks were completed at the commencement of Jesus' ministry and that the 70th week began then. The sacrifice brought to an end after three and a half years when Jesus died on the cross as the true Lamb of God. And the 70th week was complete when the gospel moved from being proclaimed to the Jews and shifted more to being proclaimed to the Gentiles. That's what I believe we should believe. Let's go through this passage and see if we can draw some sane conclusions, ones in which we don't have to read into the text wild stories that aren't there unless we impose them on the text. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. The first questions we need to ask is, whom was this vision about and when was it supposed to take place? Those would be good questions, right? You should always ask yourselves who, what, when, where, and why. And how? Okay. So these are two good questions to start with. Whom was the vision about and when was it supposed to take place? Verse 24 answers the first question. The vision was about the future of natural Israel. Isn't that what it says? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So this is what Daniel was praying about the future of his people, Israel. The 70 years of exile were almost over. What's next? Gabriel's here to tell him what is next. And he begins the vision by telling them, these are 70 weeks that are determined for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem. Amen? So the answer to the first question, whom was this vision about? It is about Israel and their city, Jerusalem. And what was to take place regarding them in the future? The answer to the second question, when would all that the vision speaks of take place, is found in the very next verse, verse 25. It says that the 490-year period shall begin, quote, look there in verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's when the 490 years is going to begin. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, we have to ask ourselves, when did this command go forth? That would be a good question to ask. Well, we know from the Bible and history itself that this decree went forth in 457 B.C. In the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 11 through 26, turn there to the book of Ezra. You may recall that's before the book of Psalms, before the book of Job, and uh, before the book of Nehemiah. So don't be looking around after Proverbs. Look prior to that. Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. It says, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. 
<laughs> I love that, and so forth. <laughs> I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And as you read through here, you see he gives a decree for the city to be rebuilt. So here in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 11 through 26, we have the decree of King Artaxerxes for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, which took place after what's taking place here in Daniel, even though it's earlier in the Old Testament book. You understand that the Old Testament isn't put together in historical chronology, correct? Okay. So here we have the decree in Ezra 7, 11 through 26. Verse 8 says of Ezra 7 that this took place in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So we know historically that this decree went forth in 457 B.C. since he began his reign in 464 B.C. Started his reign in 464, seventh year of his reign. It's 457 B.C. when the decree came forth. Remember, we talked last week that... This time when Daniel is meeting with Gabriel was about 535 B.C., somewhere right in that area. So his decree uh, comes how many years after this? Quite a bit ways after this to rebuild the temple, 70 years later or something. 80 years later. So, we know historically that this decree went forth in 457 B.C. since it began his reign in 464 B.C. This is when the 70 weeks or the 490 years began. Okay, now you've got to stay with me here. There's a lot of information. It's going to be tough. i got 13 pages of notes. It's crazy. And you wouldn't believe what I went through to get it down to that. Okay. I'm taking it from the point of view that most of you have never heard any of this. So I'm going to be real rudimentary and... Not skip over things. So I want you to understand the picture. There's a vision. Daniel's seeing it. It's regarding his people Israel. There's a 490-year period to this vision that he's seeing. I want you to notice also, we see from verse 25 that these 70 weeks or 490 years were broken into three parts. Isn't that what the remainder of verse 25 states? It says, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublesome times. So there's a seven-week segment, a 62-week segment, and then in verse 27 we see the final week of the 70. There's only one left because 62 and 7 is 69. So there's only one week left, and it's talked about in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So there's three parts to the 70 weeks, there's a 77-week part, a 62-week part, and a one-week part, the last being mentioned in verse 27. All are agreed that the first part of the 70 weeks, all are agreed, regardless of their eschatological camp, that the first part of the 70 weeks, the seven weeks, were complete after Jerusalem was rebuilt, which took about 49 years from the decree by Artaxerxes. Seven times seven is 49. That takes care of the first segment. Okay? Streets were redone. The wall was up. All are also mostly agreed that the next part of the 70 weeks, the 62 weeks, was complete, and all agree on this, either one of the two, 
was complete after either Christ's ministry commenced or when Christ died at Calvary. Okay? So all are agreed that by the time you get to the 69 weeks and you're ready to start the 70th week, you're either at the point where Christ is commencing his public ministry or you're at the point where he died at Calvary. All agree on this, regardless of their eschatological camp. Although the difference between these two can be huge, as we will see here in a few minutes. But all are not agreed on the final part of the 70 weeks, the one week. It's huge differences. Some say the 70th week took place consecutively as the first 69 did. Others say the 70th week took place from 67 A.D. until 74 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Others say there is a huge gap, which is now nearly 2,000 years long, between the 69th and the 70th week. Now let us delve into the disagreement between those in the 62-week segment, which is when 69 of the 70 weeks are complete. Were the 69 weeks complete at the commencement of Christ's ministry, or were they completed his death? Okay? Let's get that first before we go to the one week. We have a difference dealing with the end of the second segment, the 62 weeks, which adds up to 69 because the seven had already been done. Some say it's at the commencement of Christ's ministry. Others say it's at his death at Calvary that that 69 weeks wraps up. Were the 69 weeks complete at the commencement of Christ's ministry or were they completed his death? Most dispensationalists, which is the group that believes there's a huge gap between the 69th and 70th week, put the end of the 69 weeks at Christ's death. But most scholars and some dispensationalists repudiate this because the chronological time system used to come to their conclusions has been proven faulty and has been thoroughly repudiated. Except, of course, to most dispensationalists who need it that way in order to make their eschatological scenario work. Or, just as importantly, to repudiate those who hold to the historical view of the church, namely, that what was spoken of in Daniel was complete by 70 A.D. The chronological time system the dispensationalists used was concocted by Sir Robert Anderson in his 1881 book entitled The Coming Prince. Anderson was a dispensationalist who preached with John Nelson Darby himself, the father of dispensationalism. His calculations of the first 69 weeks are 483 years. Okay, the first 69 weeks, 69 times 7 equals 483, was based on what he called prophetic years. Okay, what's a prophetic year? Stick with me now. Don't let your eyelids go down. This was the belief that Israel of old numbered the years by 360-day years rather than by the 365-day solar year. Now, without going through all the projections, because you'd surely be asleep then, let me simply say that he came to the conclusion that Christ was killed on April 6th, A.D. 32. April 6th, A.D. 32. His projections started with the decree made by Artaxerxes in his 20th year, found in Jeremiah 2, 1 through 8, which would have taken place in 445 or 444 B.C. 
uh, 12 or 13 years, 13 year difference between the 457 decree by Artaxerxes. The same king, King Artaxerxes, same guy. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Let's look at that there. I am not in the right book. I am supposed to be in Nehemiah. Pardon me. Forget the J, move it to an N, and go to Nehemiah. <laughs> it makes way better sense, doesn't it? Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what it says. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, remember his original decree went out in the seventh year of his reign, now we're in the 20th year of his reign, when wine was before him that I, talking about Nehemiah, he was the king's cupbearer, you may recall, when wine was before him that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never seen, and now I had never been sad in his presence before, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And the king said, may the, and, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of your, of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them according to the good hand of my God upon me. Okay. So Anderson went with, Sir Anderson went with this date, 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which was in about 444 B.C. Anderson's timeline has been repudiated thoroughly by scholars over and over again, and I just want to give you a few of the highlights as to why. Number one, this wasn't the decree. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 was not the decree. The decree had already taken place prior to this in 457 B.C. in the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign, where it was called even clearly a decree. And as you read through there, it was all to rebuild Jerusalem. The decree had already gone forth 13 years earlier, as we saw in Ezra 7. Notice verse 25 of Daniel says this will be done, quote, even in troublesome times. The rebuilding of Jerusalem will be done even in troublesome times. Trouble had ensued since the decree went forth to rebuild 13 years earlier. And the rebuilding had been hindered, hence Nehemiah's situation. But the decree itself had already gone forth. There is no way you can come up with it being 444. It clearly took place in 457. That's when the decree went forth by Artaxerxes. Number two, all cultures during this era, which used the 360-day years, which Anderson pointed to as examples, made up for the time lost in their various calendars, for example, like adding five days onto the 12th month, 
so that things equal out to the 365-day solar year. Unbeknownst to Anderson at that time, um, this has been proven since then within those cultures that he used to bring about his position, to establish his position about the 360-day years. Number three, when you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, you see that the Old Testament writers themselves went by the 365-day solar year concerning their historical and chronological statements, not a 360-day prophetic year, quote-unquote. And finally, number four, Anderson puts Christ's crucifixion at 32 A.D., which stands in utter contrast to the generally accepted by all scholars date, most all scholars agree on this, that Jesus died in the year 30 A.D. That's when he was crucified. So you got big problems there. So the conclusion is that Anderson's timeline is faulty and has been, by historical and biblical evidence, been repudiated. Now let us see how the 457 B.C. timeline works out for the vision of Daniel, which is before us. First, Artaxerxes gave the decree in 457 B.C., as seen in Ezra 7, clear as day. Can't get much more C-spot run than that. What's decreed in Ezra 7? When we follow the next 69 years, or 483 years, we come to what year? 26 A.D. That's with omitting a year because there is no year zero between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D., which is precisely, 26 A.D. is precisely the year Christ's public ministry commences. This is the correct conclusion, that the first 69 weeks or 483 years were completed at the commencement of Christ's public ministry. We can prove this historically and biblically. The Romans crucified Jesus three and a half years later in 30 A.D., which speaks to the, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, of verse 27. Um, But I get ahead of myself here. By the way, this timeline that I just gave you, this 490-year timeline that was given to Daniel, is precisely why the Jews of Jesus' time were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for him at that time. Because of this vision of Daniel, verses 24 through 27, the Jews of Jesus' time were looking for the Messiah. We know that historically, and we also know this biblically, that they were looking for him. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew tells Peter, I found the Messiah. Remember in John chapter 4, verse 25, uh, the Samaritan woman even. talks about how they're waiting and looking for the Messiah and his coming. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, his apostles, he takes them out, he's ready to go up. His apostles say, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? They viewed him as the Messiah. And they thought the Messiah was going to bring his kingdom in a physical sense and throw off Roman rule and that type of thing. They were looking, and we know this from other writing, extra-biblical writings too, the Jews of this time were looking for the Messiah at this time when Christ came. 
because of this timeline found here in the book of Daniel. Now, having answered these two questions, the question of who was this vision about, and the answer being Israel and its city Jerusalem, and when would it take place, and we've established it started at 457 B.C., and the 69th week ends at the commencement of Christ's ministry on earth. Having answered those two questions, and with all this now in mind, let us go through verses 24 through 27. Okay? So that was all just preparation. Now we're going through. It was all important, though. Verse 24. Verse 24 says again, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. The dispensationalist says that this has never happened in the earth. These things have never happened. So obviously it has to be speaking of yet future events. Because they determined that this never happened. We don't have in the earth a finish of transgressions, an end of sins. People still sin. We don't have everlasting righteousness. And because, in their opinion, the visions and prophecies haven't been sealed up, they're still yet future, this stuff hasn't happened in the earth yet. Therefore, this vision has to be speaking of a yet future event. I say all this did already take place in the earth. And that has been the historic position of the church until about 150 years ago. That this had taken place already in the earth. Now, whose transgressions and sins were finished and brought to an end? Israel's. Not all men on the planet. Israel's. The phrase prior to that in verse 24, says again, quote, for your people and for your holy city. Who's the vision about? Israel. Amen? It's clear in the text. How were their transgressions and sins brought to an end? By no longer being the covenanted people of God. That's how they were brought to an end, because God was going to destroy them. God, as we saw repeatedly in the Gospels, would reject natural Israel at this time, the end of the 490 years, this happened, and happened through Christ's death at Calvary, and it was consummated in 70 AD, and I'm going to go through all that here, so just hold on. Their transgressions and sins, their rebellion against God, which Daniel repeatedly prayed about in his prayer... Remember his prayer over and over again? He was praying repeatedly about the sins of natural Israel, his nation, his people. There's transgressions and sins. The rebellion against God, which Daniel repeatedly prayed about in his prayer, would be over with. Because they would no longer be the covenanted people of God. Their rebellion against God, which culminated in the rejection of God's Son and having Him crucified, would be finished and brought to an end. God had dealt with this nation for centuries. They continually rose up in rebellion against Him 
And the big tsunami was finally coming. Christ spoke of it. The prophet spoke of it. And it was coming to pass. That was how their transgressions and sins were going to be brought to an end. God was going to judge them and bring them to an end as being his covenanted people. They would no longer be able to continue on in their rebellion against him as his covenanted people. Christ would be coming on the scene. He is the most holy who is anointed. When it says, and to anoint the most holy, that's talking about Christ. He will make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness through his death on the cross. Amen? And this speaks of his being cut off in verse 26. That's what the being cut off is speaking of, is his death on Calvary. The visions of Daniel and the prophecies concerning Christ will be sealed up at that time. In other words, will be concluded and fulfilled. This all took place in time and space already. Everything that's talked about in verse 24 has already happened. It's all taken place. Israel has had their transgressions and sins, their rebellion against God brought to an end and that they were rejected as God's covenanted people. He destroyed them utterly and completely. Reconciliation for iniquity and everlasting righteousness is here through Christ, who is the most holy who has been anointed. All this has been fulfilled and completed, hence the vision and prophecies has been sealed up. It's all taken place already in time and space. This is not a yet future event. There is no reason, listen to me now, there is no justification from the text to suggest that we need a 2,000 year plus gap between the 69th and 70th weeks. The 70th week runs consecutive to the 69th week just as all the weeks preceding ran consecutive to one another. There's nothing in the text to even hint at a gap. You have to impose it upon there because you've heard it so many times. You just believe it. You just assume it. Now let's go on here. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 of the weeks will be done when it comes to the Messiah, who is Christ, being here. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. As we saw, this 70 weeks, or 490 years, will begin in 457 B.C. The first seven weeks, or 49 years, covers the rebuilding of the wall and streets of Jerusalem. The second section, the 62 weeks, or 434 years, which putting the two together totals 483 years, spoken of here, is the time between the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the commencement of Messiah's public ministry in the earth. We went through that already, right? You all remember that? 457, go up, 483 years, you're at 26 A.D. 
Verse 26 says, and after the 62 weeks, we've gone through the seven, the 62, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Verse 26 says, and after the 62 weeks, or 434 years, now totaling 69 weeks, or 483 years, because we have the seven done in the 62, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Once you get past the 69th week, you have entered what week? The 70th. Comes after 69. They've all run consecutive. There's no reason to suddenly say that the 70th week isn't going to run consecutive to the first 69 as the all the first 69 ran consecutive to one another. There's nothing in the text to even remotely hint at or suggest a sudden 2,000 year break between the 69th and the 70th week. All the weeks have been consecutive and so is this. The 70th week runs consecutive to the 69th week just as all the other weeks preceding ran consecutive to one another. And it all fits perfectly if you do let it run consecutively. We saw that the first 69 weeks or 483 years brought us to 26 AD, right? The commencement of Messiah's public ministry. During that final week, he would be cut off. We know he was. He was crucified. The Hebrew there for cut off speaks of violence. And Jesus was violently killed at Calvary. We know he was crucified not for himself, as the passage says, but for others. Amen? We know this happened in the middle of the 70th week because verse 27 says, quote, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering." And I'll show you in a minute that this is talking about Christ. He is the one who brought an end to sacrifice and offering in the 70th week. This three and a half years, which would be the middle of the week, is exactly how long Jesus' public ministry was when he was cut off. It was three and a half years long. Even the early church historian Eusebius wrote during the 4th century, quote, since he, Jesus began his work during the high, priest of Annas, high priesthood of Annas and taught until Caiaphas held the office, the entire time does not comprise quite four years, unquote. That Jesus' earthly public ministry lasted about three and a half years has been recognized and held by Christian scholars down through church history. It's the middle of the 70th week when he is killed, when he is cut off. Just as um, the scriptures say. Now, let us continue in verse 26. Before we get in verse 27, I wrap this all together. Who are these people of the prince to come? Notice what the rest of verse 26 says. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood and the end of the war desolations. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Who are these people of the prince to come? Who is the prince to come? These would be good questions to ask. Some think the prince to come is Jesus. They do so because he is already referred to as a prince in verse 25. Remember, Messiah the prince? 
And they say that the people of the prince are the Gentiles, namely the very armies of Rome itself, whom God used to judge his people Israel. They base that, the Roman armies being his people, on Matthew 22, verse 7, in one of several parables where natural Israel is repudiated as being the people of God. And this is a very plausible interpretation. Okay? I know we've gone a long time here. Anybody need a bathroom break or anything? You can be able to stick through this. You don't have too much farther to go. And I know this is brand new information probably for 95% of the people sitting here. They base the Roman armies being his people on Matthew 22, verse 7, and one of several parables where natural Israel is repudiated as being the people of God. This is plausible, that the people of the prince is Rome and that the prince is Christ himself. Because he refers to the Roman armies as his in Matthew 22, verse 7, in a parable regarding the rejection of natural Israel as the people of God. Others think the people of the prince is referring to the Romans themselves, not the Gentiles and namely the armies of the Romans, but to the Romans themselves. And the prince is just the term used to refer to the emperor, perhaps General Titus himself, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Either way, the people of the prince to come is the Romans. They would destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple, and we know they did in 70 A.D. Amen? Either interpretation you go with, the people, the prince to come, the people, is the Romans. And that makes perfect sense to me for the text. Why we need a 2,000-year break and then some other guy's got to be raised up to be this prince is beyond me. When the text is clear and you don't need to do those types of theological gymnastics to come to figuring this thing out. Now it goes on and it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans did this. The people of the prince did this. The end of it shall be with a flood. Now this can be perplexing. What do you mean? Now, Jerusalem was never destroyed by a flood in 70 AD. Well, everyone, including whatever eschatological camp you're in, including the dispensationalists, believe this is speaking figuratively. Everyone believes this is... Nobody believes there's going to be an actual water flood that destroys Jerusalem. We know it didn't happen in 70 AD, and even the dispensationalists don't believe it's part of the future. Rather, the flood is talking about the armies themselves, and Scripture uses it this way, in a figurative way, in other places, where the armies cover the earth. So it's talking about the Roman armies. 70 A.D. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. You may recall when I went through Mark and talked about Christ preaching there, the horrible things the Jewish people went through leading up to their final demise in 70 A.D. The most deplorable conditions and uh, experiences any people on the planet have ever encountered. 
So, nobody believes this to be a literal fub, rather as figurative, as used elsewhere in Scripture, refer to armies covering land. This is why the NIV, being a dynamic equivalent translation, simply says, quote, like a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. The war on natural Israel by the Romans consummated with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., we know that as historical fact, though the last holdouts were not defeated at Masada until 73 or 74 A.D. The last half of verse 26, what we just looked at, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. The last half of verse 26 speaks of the result or consequence of Messiah's death at Calvary upon natural Israel. Let me repeat that to you. The last half of verse 26 speaks of the result or consequence, that's why the word and is used, I believe, of Messiah's death at Calvary upon natural Israel. It did not have to be, nor is it, part of the 70th week. It is important to notice that nowhere in Daniel's vision are we told when the 70th week does conclude. Did you notice that? There's nowhere in Daniel's vision that we're told when the 70th week does conclude. Both verse 26 and verse 27 follow the symmetry of Oriental or Eastern writing. The first half of both verses refer to the work of Christ during the 70th week. Namely, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And in verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The first half of both verses refer to the work of Christ during the 70th week. The last half of both verses refer to the results or consequences of Christ's work at Calvary upon natural Israel. Is that not true? The end of verse 26, and the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, last part of the verse, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This type of literary symmetry is employed often in the Old Testament. Chronological sequence is important to our Western minds. That's why we could never win at Pac-Man. Or it took us years to learn how to win at Pac-Man. Now, you younger people probably don't even know what Pac-Man is. It was a, one of the first video games that ever came out. You had this guy was like a head with a big mouth, and he would eat little dots. And if you actually followed your Western mind and tried to clear out one segment at a time, guess what? These little things called ghosts came by and ate you, and you died. But if you could get out of your Western mindset where you had to categorize everything and have a timeline and everything perfectly sequenced and you could zigzag all over and just be chaos, (laughs) you could win and beat Pac-Man. Okay? Chronological sequence is important to our Western minds, but we must not foist our thinking upon the writing styles of the Eastern mind. This literary style allows, as one scholar put it, quote, a parallel rehearsal and expansion of the topic without requiring actual succession in time. A parallel rehearsal, in other words, it's more than once said, an expansion of the topic, you get a fuller picture, 
without requiring actual succession in time. In other words, one didn't happen before the other. You understand that? It's just repeating the same thing. This is throughout the Old Testament. You see this type of literary symmetry. Even dispensationalists recognize that not all prophetic passages flow chronologically, such as the case here in Daniel. Rather, you have this literary symmetry being employed wherein you have a parallel rehearsal and expansion of the topic without requiring actual succession in time. Okay, so it isn't like verse 26 happened and then verse 29 happened. I mean, verse 27 happened. Beginning of 26 and the beginning of 27 are talking about the same time in the Messiah's life during the 70th week. The last half of 26 and 27 are also a a repetition, a restating of facts about the result or consequence of Christ's work at Calvary, the utter destruction of Natural Israel, which I want to get into more fully here now in verse 27. Let's look fully here at verse 27. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Who is the he of verse 27 that makes a covenant with the many? That's a hugely important question. Who is the he of verse 27 that makes a covenant with the many? The dispensationalists say it is referring to the prince of the people of the prince. Of verse 26. They say that the he in verse 27 refers to a future leader who makes a political covenant with Israel, somehow has some background from the Roman Empire, 2,000 years later, they say he will come into power at the beginning of the last seven years and is able to gain control over ten nations in Europe. Others say it's ten nations in the Middle East. He will make a covenant with Israel for seven years, but in the middle of the seven years he will break the covenant, stop the sacrifices at the rebuilt temple during that period, and become their persecutor rather than their protector. That's what the dispensationalists gets out of this passage. And I'm submitting to you that it's all a fantastic story that's imposed upon the text so repeatedly in American Christianity that you just believe it and you fill in, your mind automatically fills in the blanks without any exegetical work being done. You just fill in the blanks. By the way, 20 years ago when I was younger in my Christianity, All the talk within Christian eschatological circles, within Christianity was, the temple's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be rebuilt any day now. The plans, the blueprints are made. The Jews are meeting so they can figure out who's going to offer the sacrifices and sacrifices are going to be offered again. See, this is all part of their eschatological scheme based on the view that verses 24 through 27 are still yet in the future. Well, let me tell you, that's all died out now. That it's all going to be rebuilt and all this stuff. It was all the craze. 20 years later, the temple still hasn't been rebuilt. And I'll tell you, they'll never start sacrificing animals again. 
ever. And that's an important thing to look into in and of itself. You know, the temple has actually been, they've tried to rebuild the temple several times down through the centuries. Did you know that? Yeah. This isn't like, you know, some new thing like it was sold in the book and made a bunch of people, several authors got pathetically wealthy off their fantastic story. This has been tried down through the ages to rebuild the temple. It's never come to fruition every time it's been started. In fact, one of the times it was done was during Julian the Apostate, during the 4th century. He actually, remember he wanted to revive paganism and let everybody go back to what they were? He actually um, decreed the commencement of the building, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And there's eyewitness accounts that when they went to rebuild from the subterfuge of where it was, when they went to rebuild, flames of fire actually came out of the ground and lapped at people. That's what stopped, according to eyewitness accounts, the rebuilding of the temple at that time. Julian tried to, again, get it going, and then, in God's sovereignty, he was destroyed. He was killed in battle shortly after. So this is nothing new about the, you know, the Jews trying to rebuild the temple. It's happened several times down through the centuries where they tried to rebuild. Anyways, this is all nonsense. What they believe is nonsense. A fantastic story which has to be read into the text and which requires a huge gap of which there is no hint in the text itself. Not to mention 8 billion other little parts that can be ripped to shreds when you look at the scriptures they use to supposedly build their fantastic story. In truth, the he of verse 27 is referring to Christ. The antecedent of he in verse 27 is not the prince who is to come. The word prince is a subordinate noun. The people of the prince, the people is the dominant noun. The passage in verse 27 says, he, not they. It would say they if the antecedent had to do with the people. It's not referring to the prince because he's a subordinate noun. Hence, the antecedent of he in verse 27 is the last dominant singular noun mentioned, which in this case is Messiah in verse 26. Not the prince in verse 26. That's who the he is. It's Jesus. He is the one who will confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now you might be thinking, how could that be? This was to Israel. He was confirming the covenant of God. Jesus will confirm a covenant with many during the 70th week. And this is exactly what he did. He made covenant with many, did he not? Turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 28. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, for the remission of sins. Who's the many? We know here in Daniel, it's talking about who? Daniel's people, Israel. Many Jews did become Christians, did they not? 
We know in time and space now that the many also includes all those of us who repent and put faith in Christ. Amen? Whether Jew or Gentile. Jesus came to make a covenant with the many. To confirm a covenant with the many. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Turn there. A prophecy talking about Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Stick with me now. Isaiah 53, verse 11. He, talking about Christ, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Amen? Jesus is the one who made a covenant, confirmed a covenant with the many. Um, turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, listen to this, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Amen? To confirm the promises made to the Father. He was confirming the covenant to the many. Confirming the covenant to the many who? The many Jews that would become Christians. And of course... It would include all of the earth, the Gentiles. But in its immediate context, it's talking about the Jewish believers. Talking about the Jews because that's who this is being addressed to. All right. Jesus will confirm a covenant with the many during the 70 week, and this is exactly what he did. Verse 27 goes on and says... But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This is still talking about Jesus. He is the he. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. When Jesus died at Calvary, that's when he brought an end to sacrifice and offering. You say, oh, but the the offerings went on, the sacrifices went on until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Yeah, they did. The practical outcome, the consequence, the result of Christ's finished work weren't consummated, as it talks about there, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate, wasn't consummated until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But when Jesus died at Calvary, listen to me now, when Jesus died at Calvary, Israel was legally and covenantally disestablished. Those offerings made from that time on in that temple meant nothing from that time on. They were no longer the people of God, as the New Testament writers make clear in the epistles, and of which Christ repeatedly foretold in his parables and declarative preaching in the Gospels. What took place when Jesus died? Do you recall? The veil was rent in twain from the top to the bottom signifying that we all had access to God through Christ. Amen? And this is what I mean. He stopped the sacrifice, brought an end to the sacrifices and offerings. He did it when he died at Calvary. From that point on, those offerings no longer meant a thing. Because legally and covenantally, Israel had been disestablished. They had been rejected by God from that point on. 
Christ was the sole approach to him now. No longer was it the blood of bulls and goats. Everybody with me on that now? I hope so. You seem to look like you are. Israel was disestablished. The way to God was now through Christ alone. The rest of verse 27, like the last half of verse 26, simply talks about the result or consequence of Christ's finished work at Calvary, wherein the destruction of Jerusalem itself was completed in 70 AD, showing how complete the disestablishment of natural Israel as the people of God is. But the sacrifices and offerings, legally and covenantally, ended when Christ died. They were brought to an end then. Listen to this now. There is a connection between legal cause and judicial effect. There is a connection between legal cause and judicial effect, as is the case here. Legal cause was done when Christ died at Calvary. Judicial effect wasn't fully consummated until 70 AD when the temple was totally destroyed. But the legal cause was there. The veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom, signifying God was done with that. Christ was the sole approach to him. Now, one thing that bothered me about this vision here in Daniel was that nowhere in the text do we see when the 70th week ends. That, that bothered me. I'm a type of, I'm a Western thinker. I like beginnings, endings, you know. I like segments. In Matthew 10, 5 and 6, Jesus told his disciples, quote, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote. Who were the many? Here. That he made a covenant with for one week. Israel, natural Israel, Jews. And there were many who did. Believe in him. Jesus' ministry was directed towards them primarily. And remember also, most of the early preaching done by the early church was directed towards the Jews. Until we got to Paul's conversion in chapter 9. And then, of course, the huge transition with Peter in chapters uh, 10 and 11. With the sheet being brought down. When we get to Paul's conversion in chapter 9, we see the emphasis of the gospel move from preaching to the Jews to preaching to the Gentiles. Acts informs us in chapter 9 that Paul is to take the message of the gospel beyond the narrow Jewish focus as Paul, quote, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, unquote. Paul's conversion occurred shortly after Stephen's stoning most scholars place the time at 34 or 35 A.D. Going from the beginning of Christ's public ministry, which was the beginning of the 70th week, till the time of transition to the Gentiles, rather than Israel being the predominant recipients of the gospel, is about seven years. Again, there is nothing in the text that declares the exact ending of the 70th week, but I believe this was it. This is why... It said he confirmed it with the many for one week because it was directed both in his ministry on earth and the early preaching of the early church towards the Jews, Daniel's people. Confirmed it with them for one week. And then things changed. The Gentiles became the predominant people that the gospel was presented to. 
because it was talking about the Jews, Natrosio, and this is the period in which Christ did it, from the commencement of his public ministry through the first few years of early preaching by the church. As Paul declares in Acts 6, 18.6 to the Jews, he says, your blood is upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There was a transition that took place. Covenant was declared more fully to the Gentiles now rather than the Jews. And I believe that's why it says he confirmed it with him for one week. It goes from his beginning of his public ministry through the early years of the preaching of the early church, primarily to the Jews. So, you have plenty to consider with what I have set forth here today. Don't you think so? I believe that the 69 weeks were complete at the commencement of Jesus' ministry and that the 70th week began then. The sacrifices were brought to an end after three and a half years, which was how long Jesus' ministry on earth was when Jesus died on the cross as the true Lamb of God. And the 70th week was complete when the gospel moved from being proclaimed to the Jews and shifted more to being proclaimed to the Gentiles. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for this opportunity to go through this passage, uh, to look at it, to exegete it, to try to make sense of it without the fantastic story, without the 2,000-year unhinted-at gap. Father, we just ask and pray that you use what was preached here today for good in each person's life. May they understand your ways and your thoughts better. Make each one a student of your word. May they take time to study these things out and look at what was proclaimed here today, uh, to do battle with it, to debate it, uh, to consider it, regurgitate it. Lord, do a great work within each one. Hallelujah, Lord. Father, I ask and pray that you would be glorified. Lord, we see the bad fruit of the present eschatological scenario which has been embraced by your church in the majority for over a 100 years now, and we see the result in our land. Indifference of the people of God towards things which are dear to your heart. Father, I just ask and pray that you would help us to follow after you and that we would be men and women of the word studying so we know your ways and thoughts. And I ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Hallelujah. You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion here. But you do need to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you refrain from taking communion. And we observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat Christian Church. Uh, we do that for a number of reasons. One, it's the tradition of the church to do so, so we follow in that blueprint laid out by the early church, and we observe his table each week we gather. A little differently than they did. They made a meal of it often, whereas we just um, have a little cup and a small piece of bread. But nevertheless, the observance is important 
Because we do it because we need to be reminded of God's great salvation. As the scriptures teach here in 1 Corinthians 11, that we need to remember what he has done for us. And why do we need to remember? We need to remember because man, in all his religiosity, always wants to think it's something that he's done that gives him right standing with God. And we're no different after we get saved. Even after we're saved, we can fall into this these times where we think it's Jesus plus something I've done that gives me right standing with God. And that's absolutely false. And this time at his table reminds us how false it is because there's only two elements at his table, the fruit of the vine, which represents his shed blood, and the bread, which represents his body, and absolutely nothing else. It's not these two elements plus a list of how many hours Matt Chuella spent in prayer or how many people Matt Chuella witnessed to. It's these two elements alone signifying our sole approach to God is through Christ alone. Amen? Now, it's good to spend hours in prayer and it's good to witness to people. And when you're a Christian, you'll want to do those things. The thing is, is that often people begin to use those good things they do as a means whereby they try to approach God. And you cannot do that. The good things that we do are the result or the fruit or the evidence of our saving faith. We don't do those good things to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtained God's acceptance. And there's a world of difference between the two. John Calvin wrote a whole treatise on it, and it's fantastic if you ever get a chance to read it. Huge difference between the two. So this time at his table reminds us that our sole approach to the Father is through Christ alone. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen? This is a great salvation God has provided us with. Let us stand fast in this covenant. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us unto yourself, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of your Son. And may how great that is never grow old in our hearts, O Lord. If we become lukewarm or just ho-hum in our walk with you, O God, stir our hearts, I pray. Push us back towards your Son, Jesus. May we plumb the unsearchable depths of the riches of Christ, Father. Praise your holy name. And as we do so, O Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be your ambassadors and declare your holy law and this great salvation to others. And I ask for these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Let's just stand and we'll worship him for a moment, and then I'll close in prayer. Hallelujah, God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the years so we can study them. 
Hallelujah, Lord. Lord, we just ask and pray that you would be glorified in our lives and through our lives in every aspect of our life. Lord, I ask and pray that each man here would be a priest to his home and take time to open your word to his wife and to his children this coming week. They did not shirk his responsibility as a priest to his house. Praise your holy name. God, we pray again for our sister Ruth lays in bed in the hospital. We ask that you bring healing by the power of your hand, O God, the power of your might, by the power of your spirit, bring healing to her body, O God. May you use it for good in her life. May she be a better woman because of it, what she's gone through and the suffering she's endured during this time, O God. Lord, use it for good in the earth. Use it as an opportunity for us to glorify you too. Father, we ask for all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you.